I thought that uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things I'd like to try to do this morning, and uh, so and we'll, it may end up being spread over two Sundays, but Jeffrey is going to step in, uh, I think, uh, yeah, next week for, for two weeks. Yeah, so, and then, so I'll have this session, and then in three weeks, I'll be back, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back to this lesson again, but I, as I was, was studying again, just the fullness of this book, and this letter, and really the ministry of Paul, and all of his letters, you, you, you just begin to get such a appreciation for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, not to take away from any of the others, but, um, you know, just just the the process that he went through, particularly with this book, um, and we're we're at somewhat of what feels like a, a another transition point in the book, and I think we are, but I think what you'll see is that it's a transition point to a to a new level of teaching. Uh, based on all that Paul has taught, and then he's going to carry that forward with everything he's taught. And I'm going to try to help us see that a little bit more this morning so you can understand and appreciate the book when you just sit down and read it cover to cover, because it really is quite extraordinary when you do that. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of a, an outline of what's gotten us to this point and then where is Paul taking us next? Because it's really vital to be able to kind of grab hold of Paul's, what I would call the, the continuity of his thought. It's really extraordinary in this book. Um, but let me, let me just pray for us. Father, as James and I were just glorying in you about, it is such a precious gift and truth that... Uh, as we walk through the trials of life and the daily struggles and at times the moment-by-moment -moment struggles of life and health and so many different ways at which the trials come at us that we can always hear, trust and believe the wonderful words of the writer of Hebrews that at any moment we can walk right into the throne room of God in the course of our prayers and our pleading, our struggling, our fears, our anxieties. And we can just wrap our arms around you and just know that you are that great high priest who in every way can empathize with our circumstance because you are the purposer of those circumstances. And you give us your word and it is such a wonderful comfort. And even more so, Lord, as you take us through our trials, you so often turn right around and put us in the lives of someone else who needs the very same comfort that you have comforted us 
to just manifest your gracious work in our lives and the privilege to just pour that out into the lives of those you bring into our life. So we just take this time to just praise you, Lord, and to just lift up this time of study in your word with the hope and the desire to just honor you and to do all of this as you have called us and given us to do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you'll, you'll bear with me, I really kind of want to, you know, and it, it might be good to just, if you've got your Bibles, just kind of flip through this as we outline our way through this book of Romans, because I really want to just recalibrate us to, to where Paul's gotten us and how he's gotten us there and where he's going and why that's very, very relevant um, to, to the next uh, section we're headed into. I, I want to just look at Romans 1, 16 and 18 first. And I, I really do believe as I've looked across this book, you know, multiple times that, that this is really the main point that Paul has conveyed. And we've talked about this a number of times when we opened this book and throughout this book. But you'll see this recurring over and over and over again. This is like the anchor or the guide wire that Paul uses in this book where he just beautifully reveals to us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and this is what's key, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and here, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, right? That, that, is, that is the central rail that Paul's going to keep us on all the way through this book. And there's several reasons for that. Um, so he goes from that magni magnif magnificent statement, the power of the gospel being found in the righteousness of God, and as we've studied most recently, then becomes the righteousness of God that through the imputation and the blessed work of the triune God becomes the righteousness from God that we are then justified by. And this is Paul's Philippians 3.9 statement. It is not my righteousness. It is a righteousness that I couldn't even know existed. And the more I am wrapped around my delusional, self-righteous religion, the farther that truth gets from me because it becomes the antithesis of my ability to save myself. That's the rail that Paul's on in this entire letter. And it is supremely important, right, as, as we have seen. He then goes all the way from Romans 1.18 through 32, where he universally condemns every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, and revealing that the evidence of that condemnation, listen, the evidence of that condemnation is manifested in the perversions and unrighteousness of society. That is not what draws God's condemnation. 
That is the evidence of it. Now think about that when you think about our society today. And then realize it was every bit the exact same thing in Paul's day. And Solomon was right. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to this, right? This is this rail that Paul's walking along. Is There's a righteousness of God, and then there's the entire perversion and condemnation of humanity. And he's exhaustive in this effort, as you remember. It took, us, took me months to get through there. But then we come to Romans 2, 1 through 3, if you just flip to that, where Paul turns the flow of the letter to the individual. He takes it out of this cloud of humanity and the condemnation, and he brings it right down to, who are you, O oh man? You, O oh man. He's, he's, pardon me, but you is what he's doing. He's bringing it down so that nobody is sitting comfortably saying, those people from Romans 1, 18 through 32. Because what does he say, right? He says, who are you, O oh man, to judge them when you do the very same thing, it's just another way of declaring from the big cloud of sinful humanity to the individual life that I live that brings every one of us to the same place. I am guilty. That's the point, okay? Which is where he goes with Romans 2, 1 and 3, to 1 through 3. Then we come to Romans 2, 4, and 5. And for me personally, I think this was the, to this point, the most beautiful understanding in my heart about everything we see about God's wrath, about God's mercy, about all of the work that God is doing before a sinful world. And it's just worth reading Romans 2, 4, and 5 to really kind of look at what Paul's doing with this passage. We read in Romans 2, 5, Or do you presume, look down upon the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Who is Paul talking to? Anybody who's listening. Right? Anybody who is listening. God's kindness is manifested in the fact that our life is utterly sinful before a holy God. And yet he lets us enjoy the blessings of a beautiful spouse, the blessings of children, the blessings of this marred creation and the beauty that still exists with it. Even for the most vile sinner who hates God, he is allowing that kindness and forbearance and patience to restrain himself from what they deserve, what I deserve right now. That is the point of it. And that passage should just give us an evangelistic fire for the most lost of people, right to the ones that are right on the fringe, right? And that, that's really what Paul 
is getting at. But here comes the counterbalance of Romans 2.4. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart. There's the condition. And here comes the fearful consequence. You are storing up wrath for yourself. See how personal that is? On the day of wrath, when God's, and here it comes again, righteous judgment will be revealed. And now you begin to see the righteousness of God and all of a sudden the righteous judgment of God. What is invoked when we think of judgment when it comes from God? The law. And that's right where Paul's going. So I just want you to see this sequence because it becomes very, very material to to the passage we're going to just touch on today. And that's what we see from Romans 2.6 all the way through 3.21. We see Paul revealing the law as the means not by which we are saved, but by which we are condemned, by which we are declared guilty. And this is... This is, you've got to try to grasp the gravity of this in Paul's day. You've got to try to grab the gravity of this in Paul's life because who was Paul? Saul. What was Saul? He was a, he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was brilliant. He was sought after as a student. He was taught by the greatest of teachers. He himself, in his testimony, obeyed the law. (laughs) He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. And what Paul understood when those scales came off of his eyes was that every single bit of his life and pursuit of that Glorious self-righteousness was a delusion that condemned him. And I think that's why he sat there for three days, blind. He didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He didn't drink. And I can only imagine that the law was going through his mind and condemning him every step of the way until those scales came off and he understood that it was always a righteousness from outside of him. And Saul became Paul. And we can just thank God for that precious work. Right? I was just sharing with someone that I love so dearly and she's working through one of the most horrific trials of the realization that her life has been so shameful, she can't even bear the thought within her own heart. How many people do we know are just like that? How many people do we know need to know that in Christ Jesus, we are a new creation. The old things have passed away. 
We have so many people in our lives who are trying to wash that unrighteousness away with their own filthy rags of self-righteousness. Think about that. And it is the righteousness of Christ that has to be understood, which is the means by which that light comes in to that darkness. And we have got to be able to unpack the gospel just like Paul's doing here. Because he's doing it, as we see in Romans 9, 10, and 11, most dearly for his beloved Israel, right? A couple of things about this section in Romans 2, 6 through 3, 21. Through this correction in the thinking of humanity, especially for the Jew, he strips away in Romans 2, 6 through 3, 21, every tendency to boast in oneself, in one's behaviors, in one's righteousness, revealing that God shows no partiality whatsoever. What he means by that is, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna get a break because you were raised in a Christian family, because you were surrounded by the gospel, because you were in church all the time, because you're Jewish, because you're Abraham's line, because you're circumcised. That is not how God saves. He is not partial to any of that is the Paul's point, right? To put a big exclamation point on this delusion of self-righteousness, particularly within the Jewish people, right? And as he says it, Romans 3.21, our transition point, that so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No one excluded, right? And this is this reality that how can we come to Christ through their gospel if we have not first come through that door of condemnation with no way out other than Christ and his finished work? Because to come out of another door, and this is the John 10, is to add something that we're doing to the work of Christ, and that is another gospel. That is what Paul fought against, and you'll see him fighting against it very quickly. And Paul unpacked this beautiful, long letter for this purpose. And he is exhausted, wonderfully exhausted. For those of us that love to dig in, he is wonderfully exhausted and repetitive about these things in this book, as we'll continue to see. But there's a transition point from all this darkness and condemnation of humanity back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it is a begging question. If the law can't save us and my righteousness can't save us, what is the natural question? then how might I be saved? How must I be saved? Paul spends the first three chapters of this book bringing the reader to that question, and he answers it in five very concentrated verses from Romans 3.21 through 26, as we've spent the last number of weeks on. Because in there, Paul unpacks what God does 
in order to transfer us from the domain of darkness to this kingdom of his beloved son by taking the righteousness of God found only in the perfect life of Christ crucified, offered and accepted by the Father, and then imputes it to Grady so that God sees Grady no longer as that Romans 1 through 321, shut your mouth, Grady, you're a sinner, to the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees. That's what he declares. That's what's imputed to the sinner. so that they might be both just because Grady's sins were paid for not by Grady but by Christ and the righteousness of God found in Christ was imputed to Grady and therefore they are just in justifying him through his believing of God and what he's done to redeem Grady from what he could never redeem himself from. That's where Paul's gotten to. And that's why it's just, this is so glorious. These are the deep, deep truths that if we don't rightly understand them, our bolts to our salvation are not screwed down. Because we so often drift in and out of the need to be a good person. Right? The need to now uh, uh, have penance for the sins that we commit. The, the failure to realize that yesterday's sins, today's sins, and tomorrow's sins have all been dealt with on that cross. Or we have a wishy-washy God who at any moment looks more like Allah than he does our God and Father the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ, quite frankly. Because he's just whipping in the wind based on what we do or not do. And that is not our God at all, nor is it the salvation by which they have made for us. It is solid as a rock. So screw those bolts down in here about your salvation, right? But Paul goes somewhere very interesting, and this is what's struck me the last couple of weeks. There's something pressing deeply in his heart, which he really brings into our text in Romans 3.27. And I, and I want to kind of use this not to, I really want to challenge us in our thinking about what is it that Paul is conveying to us? What is he trying to tell us? And how does that rise up and flow out of what he's taught us already and the life of the Apostle Paul? Okay, so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of seeding the thinking a little bit here because I just think it's so important to not miss this. Regarding Romans 3.27 through 31, Paul finds it, and these are the words of James Stifler, which is one of my favorite commentaries on this book. He finds it essential to not end the discourse on this section of scripture in 321 through 26, which by the way is the most glorious of truths. He couldn't stop there. There's more he has to say about this, right? 
And what he does is he moves the reader into a consideration of the most crucial objections that the religious of his day have foisted upon the gospel. And by his previous position in Judaism, they have foisted it upon him especially. And I mean especially. Paul was hunted like an animal. His family had turned it against him. You don't hear a whisper other than the life that he had come from. But you do know that it was his nephew that came to him to warn him that there was a coalition who's coming after you and he climbs out a window. Right? You think about this. Paul was a hunted man because he once was at the, he was up there with Nicodemus in this pillar of self-righteousness. And now he has brought a gospel in that absolutely goes at the heart of it and condemns it as delusion with the memory of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ always in the mind of so many people who also went right at this issue. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14. And I want to build this out so that we can kind of walk down this, this rail. Because we begin to see it in 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14. This very personal thing that is on Paul's heart. So he tells the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, for our boast is this. Now, we've seen that word boasting a lot, haven't we, in Paul's letter to the Romans? But it's generally from the negative. This is boasting from the positive, which was very helpful for me, right? It's when you hear and you read glorying in the Lord, that's what he's talking about here, right? For our boast is this, the testimony of our, pay attention to this, conscience, That we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. There's the letters in the Old Testament scriptures. But look at where he goes and sees this as his ministry. And I hope you will fully understand. Kind of gives you a little bit of insight as to how these letters that were circulating around in the form of epistles were used. They were read. They were studied. They were discussed so that there would be understanding of the deep truths that were in them which is exactly what we do Sunday morning and in our Bible studies when we come together to do that. That's what we need to be doing is seeking the understanding of the scriptures. Verse 14 says, just as you did partially understand us, right? I thought immediately this morning when I read that again of Peter's comment about Paul's writing, how hard they are. How hard they are, to, but you got to stick with them. Sink your teeth into them. Understand them, because in them are the deepest and most beautiful truths you can know. Right? But Paul admits, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day 
of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now there's why he's boasting. That is the church being the church in all her wonderful, messy, merciful, gracious, loving, kind, patient ways. It's all the sanctification of the church and we will one day see the beauty of that when all this stuff that we go through as believers and as a church is now faded away. The sanctification of the church. Now I want to read, and for those of you who have a MacArthur Study Bible, I thought it was so helpful to read the backdrop on this verse 12. Let me just read it for you. Paul faced his critics, many accusations against his character and integrity by appealing to the highest human court, his conscience. And we had a beautiful discussion yesterday at our table about just how important it is that we realize that the conscience is individual. It's my conscience. It's Grady's conscience, right? It's Jeff's conscience. And that conscience needs to be informed by Scripture. And it's good to have fellowship and discipleship so that our consciences are informed properly. But there are matters of life that come down to your conscience before the Lord, and that is the only place from which the right answer for you can come out of. And it is really important today. Part of our discussion yesterday was this storm that's going on within the church right now about do we attend a wedding of a beloved who has chosen a sinful lifestyle and orientation what do we do this becomes a matter of conscience not a broad brush command that is not in the bible and we had better be discerning of these things today and be very mindful of our conscience or we just become walking drones of what somebody else says is right and wrong potentially violating our own conscience that God has given us, right? And I think that's part of what is, what is being gotten at here. The highest human court, his conscience. The accusations, and this comes right back to our Romans, so don't lose me on this. That this comes right back to our Romans passage we're about to read. They had accused him of being proud, self-serving, untrustworthy and inconsistent, mentally unbalanced, incompetent, unsophisticated, and an incompetent preacher. Why? It's this rail. It was the fact that the predominant means by which we are saved is through our human achievement and the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ manifested to Paul and the whole world shatters that. And this is what the religious, 
and much of this came from within the church, foisted upon the gospel and upon Paul because it so disrupted this, this idea of human achievement that they foisted every possible accusation on Paul. And it must have just tore him down. And yet, in all that weakness, he was strong in the Lord. So with all of that, turn, turn to Romans 3, 27 and 31. And we'll see if we can just pick this out of here. Because what Paul does is he really provides a, a bit of an outline for everything that he's taught up to this point in this book of Romans. So he's connecting us and transitioning to something very personal. Romans 3.27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? And this is right on the heels of, right, Romans 3, 21 through 26. It is excluded, that's his point, by what kind of law, so there's the law being invoked again, by a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is, here comes the justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. This is exactly what he's been teaching for three chapters. And he's repeating it again and again and again, as we will see. Right? Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? There's that partiality that I somehow have special favor with God, much more so than the rest of you people, right? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Think about when Paul stood up with Peter in the book of Acts, when it seems like at that point, the whole, this whole gospel versus works was hanging on the thread of Peter and Paul. And Paul had to rebuke Peter in front of the entire congregation because Peter was showing partiality towards the works-based religion at the expense of the Gentile believers that have just been saved into the church. Do you see how serious that is? This is all part of Paul in the writing of these letters. It just oozes out of him. And you see it, you see it here. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God, and this is his point, God is one. Okay, if God is one, then the next question that should get asked is, so does God save in more than one way? That's the question. If God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What's the common denominator there? Faith. That's the point. It's one God, one faith, one way of saving. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Sorry, droves of preachers who would love to just continue 
to say that because they were saying it back then. And it gets right to the heart of where Paul goes in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? You see the question Paul's provoking. You mean to tell me that you think through this faith that we just, pardon me, unhitch ourselves from the law? Do we just come to Jesus however we are so we can stay that way and just attach Jesus to our sinful lifestyle? That's what Paul's getting at here. Do you mean to tell me that you think that this faith, this gospel, means throw out the law and live however you want? And look what he says. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. What is Paul What is Paul defending himself against? What's he guarding himself against? What has he been accused of? You remember a passage back in Romans 3? Look at Romans 3, because Paul's picking this point up. And you really have to pick it up in Romans 3.1. I'm just going to leave us kind of sitting on this thought, because this is where Paul is coming back to. It's very repetitive. As I read this to you, you'll see it in this text in 3.27. Romans 3.1 says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. And Paul's going to unpack this in the next chapter and a half, by the way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. There it is again. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteous, I'm sorry, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, so here's the heart of the argument, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? There's the delusion of a partial God. That he gives a pass on certain people's sins. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul is carrying an argument that has been voiced against him that indicts, indicts God as being unjust. That's what he's arguing against here. And here comes the personal accusation. 
And why not do evil that good may come? As some people, it's very personal right there, slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And Paul is picking back up in Romans 3.27 from this very thought. He's picking it back up from a few chapters ago, and he's now going to unpack that for us through the history of Israel and Abraham. And he wants us to, to hang on this point because it is an accusation as we will see in a couple of weeks, that is rampant in the church today because of this delusion of self-righteous works that are somehow commingled with the perfect work of Christ. And Paul is belaboring this point for a reason. And so we're just going to walk right along with him to do it. So, anybody have any thoughts or comments or questions? How all this connects? The gospel of righteousness of God, the absolute depravity of man, and inability of man, the glorious gospel that saves us and transfers us through the righteousness of God, through Christ, imputed to us. But here comes all of the war. And brothers and sisters, Paul is walking us into how we must defend the gospel by rightly dividing it through the scriptures. Yeah. Okay, great question. You're going to have to wait two weeks to get there. But, but, let's, but, in fairness, but in fairness, how do we uphold the law as believers? Anybody think of a, there's a, a banquet of passages. Anybody want to share one? I have one that the Lord just used to pierce my heart as a pagan religious person living in this delusion of self-righteousness. But can you think of a passage? What do we do as believers with the law? Paul's argument is, it surely doesn't mean that we throw it out and we live however we want. Because the law is perfect, and that's the argument that you hear. The law was broken. It was God's first try, but he had to jettison, and then he had to put his son on a cross. I've literally heard that come out of the mouth of <coughs> professed believers who know nothing about the gospel. Right? So, so what do we do with the law? Ah, there it is. John 14, 15, and 21. The most intimate moment in our Lord's life with those men in that upper room. He's going to the cross in hours after he's going to get beaten, mocked, and he's going to glare at Peter across the courtyard as he's walked out in that state. And he says to them, if you love me, How do we love God? Why do we love God? What's John say about that? Because he first loved us. 
God first loved us, therefore I love God. And Jesus says, if you love me, if the Father has loved you and shown you the cross and you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. We are now this side of the cross in our salvation with the Holy Spirit and the law rightly understood as a means by which we are both condemned on the unsaved side of the cross, we are what on the saved side of the cross with the same law? Sanctified. Who was the perfect keeper of the law? Jesus. Who are we being conformed to? Jesus. How are we being conformed? By the Spirit's work, putting off sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ, the right choices when confronted with the law, the obedience to the law, as Nancy said. So it's a beautiful question. Just clarification. Yeah. So did so did Paul, by the way, brother. Yeah. yeah. So the first question you have to ask is, which side of the cross are you on? That is the supreme question. The, 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 another way of asking that question is, from where does your righteousness come from? That's the key question. That's what Paul does in Philippians 3. That is a magnificent passage to start a conversation lovingly with someone who is trapped in the delusion of self-righteous religion. The law which we see in the Sermon on the Mount, beautifully amplified by our Lord, the standard that we can never keep, but are being conformed to as we speak, right? So without a doubt, you have to begin to break things down between ceremonial, moral, and begin to understand which were copies and shadows and have been completely fulfilled by Christ, and that's a study that Jeff can walk us through, you know, some year, <laughs> right? But there is then the moral law that carries forward that Paul is talking precisely about here. And the best place to go is that Sermon on the Mount, right? To see the righteousness of God manifested, and yet how far we come from ever reaching it, but yet are being conformed to it because we're being conformed to the perfect author of that law who then was the only one who ever could keep that law perfectly. So it's the sanctification side. And that's part of the wonder of the gospel. On one side, the law condemns. Absolutely. On the other side of the cross, we are enabled through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the law, to now be conformed to Christ. And that's what Paul unpacks for us from Romans 6 all the way out through the beginning of Romans 8. So we're going to get it, get into that quite nicely, brother. It's a great question.
That's the delusion. But now the same law, as Nancy pointed out, obeyed from the heart and out into our life, actually glorifies the Lord instead of brings shame and filthy rags upon the Lord, right? You see, that's, that's one of the wonderful nuances of the gospel that an awful lot of people need to understand, and we've got to be able to explain that through the scripture. So, so thanks for asking that question. Paul's actually going to unpack this for the next several chapters so which is I think something we don't talk enough about is which is why I'm so sensitive to the need of God and so for you, that I go away and the Spirit comes. What does that mean? It means the Spirit is going to be here in every believer. So when the believers gather, there is a wondrous thing that happens, like right now. Beautiful point. Right? Through the conscience. That's why the conscience is perfect circle back. That's why the conscience is so important. That's right. You can, and I, I would nuance it with the way I opened up about it. You can make choices within the boundaries of Scripture that are that are faithful to your conscience before the Lord because my choice may not be the same as Grady's choice in the same similar situation, right? But within the boundaries, it's like marriage. Who am I going to marry, Lord, right? Right, yeah, right? But within the boundaries of God's design for marriage, once you get inside that boundary, pick anybody that fits the criteria, I don't mean to write, but see what I'm saying? It's not one. It, there's a boundary there that God gives us the free conscience to now go make choices. So we'll, we'll get into all that, but thank you. I understand, brother, especially this side of that precious marriage. So, All right, so Jeffrey will be up the next two weeks. We'll look forward to that, and then we'll be back in three weeks. So you're welcome.